You're listening to the Bible Guys Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Ferguson, along with Professors Jerry Hollinger and Rick Kleinert. The Bible Guys is a podcast focused on knowing God better through what He has written. You can find out more by following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Bible Guys Pod. You can also contact us via email at BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. Welcome, guys. Uh, back here for another podcast talking about the Bible. Last week, we talked about... Hey, Devin, before we get started a little further, I, the, our listeners heard this as they introed in. They've got our commercial for Anchor. Um, yeah. You know, for, so, so hit us up for money there. And then finally, they, they heard our new, your new intro into the podcast. I was listening to it <laughs> this weekend, and both me and my wife both noticed your voice was weird in that intro. It was... Can you, can you chat us up a little bit about what was going on in that? Okay. So, okay. So I was recording this. So I, sometimes I think with this whole COVID-19 and, and things, I, my sleep schedule has been like really off. And so just to be honest with you guys, I was actually recording this at like 2 a.m. Uh, and I was trying to be as quiet as I could. And then it was like every, I, I re-record, I probably did this for like 30 minutes trying to re-record the audio, but it sounds weird. Dang it. Okay. Well, all right. I guess I'll it, have to. To me, and maybe I'm, and maybe our listeners can just email us and let us know if I'm just going off the deep end here, but it, it sounds very, you know, welcome to the Bible guys podcast. It's, it's very, <laughs> it's very creepy in a way there for a little bit. Delilah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, very, very late night, um, you know, listener, you know, send, send in your phone call. We'll, we'll play whatever you want to play kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Noted. Okay. I will re-record this. So if you're listening next week when we release a new one, if it changes, you'll know that it was because we made fun of them a little bit for this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, uh, as I was saying, right. uh, as I was saying, um, <laughs> our new... Our topic uh, for this week, uh, if, you were, if you're listening in order, last week in part one, uh, we sort of discussed the different views of the rapture and then where we land as the Bible guys. Um, and this week, what we wanted to do was go over some objections um, that people have to a pre-tribulational rapture. So spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to the first one, that is the view that we, that we hold and um, yeah, so so guys, if you want to jump in and, and sort of maybe we can start with a couple of these objections. Yeah, um, well, the first one, the first objection I hear a lot, and it's it starts with, it's a good premise. It just starts with, well, why do you believe in the rapture at all, whether, you know, pre-trib or any, uh, because the word isn't found in the Bible. Hmm. And so since the word's not found in the Bible, why do you hold to it? And so we're, you know, you're kind of accused of adding to um, the text. An immediate objection to that first argument of, you know, that, like I said, that the word isn't found is that there's lots of words um, in scripture that uh, we hold to doctrinally, um, like the Trinity. Uh, I would even add um, the, the, the type of the, the atonement, penal substitutionary atonement uh, is not labeled as such in the text, but it is implied in the text based on what we see taught in the text. So just to say that a word's not there um, means that, oh, since the word's not there, the concept isn't. It's not really a good or sound argument. I agree. And, and another thing to point out is 
there's a, there's a sense in which the word is there. I mean, as you said, the word rapture is not, but the, uh, the reason we use the term rapture goes back to Jerome's Latin Vulgate when he was translating this text, he used a, a form of the Latin term rapio, which has the sense of to, to seize or to carry away or snatch away. And he used that Latin term for the Greek word, which is used in Thessalonians, and that is the term harpazo, which actually occurs 13 times in the New Testament. So I suppose if we just called this the harpazo instead of the rapture, that would eliminate the objection. Yeah, or, so, we, go back, or we go back to my view, the snatching. Uh, there, yeah. yeah, that way. yeah. <laughs> or the seizure or something like that. <laughs> So, yeah, that's a completely bogus objection. Yeah. All right, so what are some other ones we have um, that we've heard commonly? Well, I think one that I've heard from some people and even some pastors that I've listened to is the fact that some people say that this is something that uh, is sort of new whenever it comes to history, uh, that this is only something that's been around for 150 years. So since this this idea, since this doctrine's only been around for since it's recent, that uh, it's it's not true. Uh, what what about that objection? Yeah, that that objection is made made a lot, and and usually it's connected with John Darby. And the idea is that there are no statements of this doctrine before Darby. The first thing I would point out is that simply isn't true. Uh, there are statements before Darby. In fact, you could go back in the first century to the shepherd of Hermas. You could go in the second century to Irenaeus and in his Against Heresies. In the fourth century, Ephraim the Syrian. So there are a lot. There are several places where the doctrine occurs, and so that that would be the first answer I would give to that. And right, I would I would even add to that because I, I think sometimes um, this view, a rapture view, tends to tie in really, um, like you said, we, we we go ahead and put it with Darby, and since Darby said this, then it's relatively new. And I've seen a lot of theological books lately, um, histories of theology that have actually gone with that premise. Uh, they've put they'll bring up Darby and saying with the, with, with Darby came the creation of this, this, and this, and name uh, some of the things he held to, which is not necessarily so. When you look at church history, this wasn't something that just was randomly brought out by Darby, but like, as you said, uh, Irenaeus and others had, had an understanding of this too. So it, it really, this, this question or this objection gets answered when you really look at history and whenever someone says, well, historically they've said this my always response is do they have you really looked and seen what they say about the concept and and speaking of history another point to bring out we really don't study this much in seminaries anymore but a lot of seminaries used to have a um, a concentration known as historical theology and historical theology didn't deal so much with church history, but rather how doctrines develop. And if one goes back and looks at historical theology, you can read some of the heavyweight authors, and and they will make the point that 
there was a logical progression of the development of doctrine over history. And it is not uncommon to find certain uh, areas of doctrine discussed during certain eras. So one era, the discussion might be how the members of the Trinity relate to each other. Another era might be the person of Christ. Another era might be the procession of the Holy Spirit, and so on. And, and so a lot of times a formulation was made by the church when there was a need to begin discussing the doctrine, and then the formulation was made. So speaking from a historical theology you know, perspective, it is, again, it's not unusual to find doctrine progressing logically and based on what was under discussion at the time. Just, just a couple of examples. If I, if I ask somebody, what was a period of church history when the doctrine of justification was greatly spoken about? Well, anybody who knows church history is going to go back to the Reformation. Oh, so you mean to tell me that before the 1500s and the 1600s, nobody talked about justification? Well, no, of course they did, but it really wasn't formulated because that was, that was the time of discussion. In our current day, or, you know, throw yourself out in the future 500 years, if you go back and discuss the topic of feminism or homosexuality in the church, they'll probably come back to our time frame. Does, does that mean that we invented these ideas? Of course not. But there's a development historically of doctrine that needs to be taken in as well. And, and I want to add another one in there that I hear all the time too with this. I'm glad you brought up that theology develops historically. Not that it is invented uh, as, as time goes on, but we discuss it as those needs arise. Um, the dis- debates on inspiration, you know, when did the canon get settled? You know, the argument is very popular that, well, the canon of scripture, the 66 books we have, they weren't settled upon until like the 300s. So do we even have everything we need? Well, the reason why it wasn't, it was settled then was because you had Arius, you had others that were, um, you had Montanus bringing things in and adding their, or, and Marcion, really the big guy in, in church history. And, and they were creating their own canon. So the church had to respond with, all right, which books are inspired books? They already knew and already had an idea of which books were inspired, but they formalized it at that time. That doesn't mean they invented the Bible or invented or compiled it at that time, but they just kind of codified it at that time. And so, yeah, that's a good point to make about theology that it does develop. It it comes up as time arises. Yeah. And you could even go, if you look at which books, you know, have just been published in our day, typically they'll, they'll, they'll come to the fore based on what's being discussed. And then that might cause a big discussion and that might cause other books to be published. So yeah. that, that's just the nature of the whole thing. So, you know, one of the ironic points about this is those who bring this charge against uh, those who hold the pre-trib view that it's relatively new Many of the doctrines those kinds of groups hold dearly, that's the same attack brought to them by the Roman Catholic Church. And they will argue along the same lines I am arguing now (laughs) to defend their doctrines. So if it's fair on one side, it's fair on the other 
side too. Yeah, agreed. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I feel like um, this sort of ties in with another, um, another objection that um, people may have. And that's the fact that some people will say that there are no direct passages that teach the rapture, that, it, that since it's an inferential doctrine, um, that that is, that's an objection to it. Right. And, you know, there are several passages that teach to it. We looked at one last week in first, in first that's four, but there's also the first Corinthians 15 and others, um, refers to it. Um, so, uh, there, there are passages that when put not pieced together, but when, when, when gelled, when looked at together, they, they seem to indicate this view. So again, that's an objection that, that you're right. It's commonly heard, but when you really put it, the pieces together, it's not as, um, it's, it's not as hard to find as, as one might think. And when you mentioned first Thessalonians four, that immediately means that everybody has to deal with this because the word harpazo is used in first Thessalonians four. And Paul does say that, the living will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So there you have it, and, and you've got to do something with it. Right. And we and also mentioned last... I'm sorry, but that's, I hate to interrupt, but that's whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, there is a snatching. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, this isn't just Christ coming down and doing something, or the second coming. This is, so we have to explain the snatching. You know, maybe that could be a great title. Explain, explain the snatching, uh, because that's that's really what we have to do with that text. Well, precisely. So you've got it there, and then you know, as we bring in other passages, we mentioned last time, First Thessalonians one ten. They are waiting for. They're looking to be delivered from the coming wrath. First Thessalonians five nine. They're going to be saved from the wrath. We didn't mention Revelation Revelation 3.10, uh, the promise that um, uh, they will be removed out of Ek uh, from the hour of testing. So, you know, there are several passages that, that have to be to put together. So this is a biblical doctrine, and, and we have to wrestle with it. And you mentioned the Rev 3.10 passage. And there are going to be some listeners who are going to look at that and say, well, wait, wasn't he just talking about Philadelphia? Isn't? Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, and I would even concede that and say, okay, he did keep them from the hour. They're, you know, that, that group of believers isn't there anymore. But when you look at that passage in comparison with all the other passages, um, you see, um, I would guess I would say, a, a precedent of, of Christ or keeping his people from moments of tribulation. And so from there it becomes a, his past activity uh, is a good indicator of his future activity, what he's going to do. So, you know, we see that uh, in scripture of, of God keeping his people from things. Um, and so it, it seems to be a, well, then, then why would God do something totally different here uh, in the future. So that becomes more of a philosophical, logical argument for it. Um, but you brought that up. So I want to kind of just touch on that. That some could use it and say that's Philadelphia. Yeah, but the premise of what God does is still the same. It never changes. Mm -hmm. That makes um, sense. 
So there's one I want to kind of talk a little bit about because I haven't heard much on it. Um, I've heard the objection, but when I hear it, nobody really goes in depth on it. Um, the abuse of the doctrine uh, of a rapture doctrine historically, um, they would use that as an objection to uh, the view on the rapture. How has that, how has this doctrine been abused historically? Well, I think there have been, this actually is one of my pet peeves and I will be the first to acknowledge the abuse of prophetic material. Um, and they're just a bunch of, you know, dim-witted Christians that have been doing this all through church history. I mean, you can begin chronicling it easily from the time of Augustine to the present day. I would also point out that those who have abused eschatology come from all stripes of theology. So this isn't just from somebody in our perspective. I mean, I can I can pull out numerous examples of covenant theologians, of amillennial theologians, all you know, all through church history have been doing the same thing. So I will be the first to acknowledge this is definitely something that has been abused. It's being abused today as I sit here. I watched over the weekend Somebody told me about a new movie that had just come out, and it's doing the same thing, trying to find signs, trying to find things happening in the world, indicating that we're in the last days. So this, this doctrine and ones like it, they have been, yes, they have been abused historically, but whether a doctrine is true or not is not based on its abuse. Mm -hmm. And there are several instances in Paul's letters where doctrines he was presenting were abused. Classic example at the end of Romans 5, he talks about grace, and then beginning in chapter 6, he imagines somebody actually saying, oh, can we go ahead and sin because of God's grace? Well, that would be an abuse of the doctrine of grace, wouldn't it? Well, that doesn't mean that the doctrine is false. And that's why Paul goes on to correct it. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes, I mean, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is a part of that argument, but the way it's been perceived by others. Um, so for example, you know, books written about the topic that would paint this in a different light or maybe fanciful way they present this, um, bring, trouble um, to the table? I think, along with what you're saying, there has been a lot of speculation, which is what I, I hear you're saying, you saying. And there are a lot of details about prophecy and really about other doctrines in the Bible. God doesn't tell us. And our job isn't to speculate and to fill in the gaps. I mean, God has revealed what he wants us to know, and, you know, we can only go that far. And one of the arguments we didn't talk about last time as to why we lean to the pre-trib rapture is the doctrine of eminency. Mm -hmm. And the doctrine of eminency does not mean that something necessarily will happen soon. It just means it could happen at any time. And so there are a lot of texts in the New Testament 
reflecting this imminency idea in that the biblical writers tell their readers to be looking for the sun. They're not looking for signs. They're not speculating as to what might happen. They're living their lives in a godly fashion, always living under the possibility that this might be the day. So we shouldn't be speculating. We shouldn't be making up stuff. We shouldn't be uh, reading headlines into the Bible, but rather we should be in this uh, state of waitful, uh, waiting expectation. Good. That's a good point. And you mentioned um, the text, like the word eminence. Uh, you know, in Revelation, you see the phrase used at the end of the letter, you know, behold, I'm, you know, ESV says, behold, I'm, I'm, I'm coming soon. Um, and in the Greek, I'll, I'm sorry, Dev, I'll take the linguist part here for a minute. That word soon uh, is, is better translated as, as quickly, um, meaning that when he comes, when, the mo- when this gets set in motion, it's going to be rapid. It's not going to be a drawn out process. Not that he's going to, not, he's not necessarily saying I'm going to be here tomorrow, but rather when I show up, you'd be ready because it's going to be quick. And that makes, that ties into his, the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 24, 25, that, that area where you never know when, because, but when he shows up, you don't have, I mean, the time is, is short. So I think the argument there that says, well, if it says he's coming soon, you, you guys missed something. Maybe, maybe you messed up. No, it's actually when he comes, he's coming quickly. It'll be, it'll be rapid, fast paced. Yeah, that's a great observation. And uh, there was one more objection. I mean, there are more than this, but we're trying to hit some of the, the major ones. This one I wanted to bring out and Rick, I think you alluded to it last time. Uh, this is one that is apparently carries a lot of weight with people. And this is from the first Thessalonians four passage where in verse 17, the text says that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And, um, this objection argues that the term meet is a technical term and it was used of going out to meet a dignitary and then immediately coming back to where the dignitary had intended to go. And so the sense would be the argument is, well, first Thessalonians four uses the verb to meet has the idea of meeting a dignitary indicating that once this catching up occurs, then the saints come right back to earth with with Christ. And that would support then either a post-trib view or a no-trib or a no-trib view or no rapture view where you just have the second coming of Christ. So I've run across that argument brought to me by some who think, okay, this is so persuasive. This is why I ditched pre-tribulationism. And I mentioned last week that, that view, since I like to look at the culture background of the passage, that view, um, I, I said I'm pre, I, I hold the pre-trib view, but I'm post-trib friendly based on that. Um, but again, when looked at as a whole, the whole text, um, I, I think for me that what keeps me from going post-trib is again, you, what do you do with the snatching? Um, is these people are going out? If we use that historical context, they're volunteering to go out to meet the dignitary. 
This isn't a, a snatching of them. Um, so, so why use the word snatching in the same text? It's, um, so, so if, if the post-trib's view is right, there's, this is a willing move out. So it doesn't, that historical nugget, which is important, which is good to, to always look at it, it doesn't fully fit the words that Paul chooses to use in the text. He's choosing to use the word that this is an act of Christ. This isn't a willful act on the part of the person, but this is a, an act of Christ that he snatches the church. I, I think one of the, the important observations you made is, <clears throat> you know, when, when you hear this, it sounds very compelling, but then really start looking at it. And I, I think you've just pointed out a case in point. Something I would add to this as well. <clears throat> I believe this interpretation or this idea goes back to an article that was written in, um, I believe it was in 1930. And, and this was the idea that was presented. And when I begin to look at the article more, more clearly, it was written by a German theologian, uh, Eric Peterson, I think it was. And, um, but as I look at this more closely, biblically, what I find is the word translated uh, to meet in the Thessalonians passage is only used three other times in the New Testament. Uh, Two of the uses are in the same passage. The um, Ten Virgins parable you mentioned a moment ago in Matthew 25. So there you have two instances, which really is like one because uh, it's the same event. And then you have one more use in Acts 28.15, which you really can't tell if there's a meeting and then an accompanying back somewhere. So basically what you've had then is two instances, and then a third instance in the First Thessalonians 4 passage, and I don't see anything in the First um, Thessalonians 4 passage that would require that we are dealing with a technical term at this point. It, in fact, it's rather interesting that when that article appeared in 1930, that's also when Moulton and Milligan uh, release their vocabulary of the New Testament, where some of the support for this came from in the um, extra-biblical literature. Interestingly, Moulton in his commentary on Thessalonians said, you can't find that in this passage. And then one other thing I want to just throw out there, and then I'll, I'll shut up on this. Um, in uh, 1994, there was an article uh, written would it be too boring if I gave the title of the article? No, go for it. it. it might make Devin smart. fall asleep if I give the... Uh, <laughs> long, t long titles make us sound smart. Well, right. the reason I'm interested in this title, <clears throat> you know, in addition to trying to sound smart, is that it's on the very issue at stake here. So the title was Hellenistic Formal Receptions, which is what you were talking about, Rick, and Paul's use of apontesis in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So what this article was doing in 1994 was taking to task Eric Peterson's article in 1930 that we're dealing with a technical term here. And I've got to read you just 
two quotes. I we've probably never read a. I don't know if we've read a quote yet on Bible guys yet, but just two statements. And I'm I'm doing this because of the um, formidable nature of the objection. So um, in the article, one cannot. And remember, he's dealing with Paul's use of this term. One cannot responsibly claim that um, apontesis is a technical term on the basis of its percentage of use in passages describing formal receptions. Sometimes the word describes a formal greeting of a dignitary, but often it does not. Yet only a minority of the uses of these terms describe formal receptions. And then the second quote really quickly. Here's the conclusion of the article. The dominant scholarly understanding of apontesis in 1 Thessalonians 4, based on the work by Peterson, and this goes to your point, Rick, that you were making, um, does not account for the differences between Paul's words and description of receptions of dignitaries. All of the main elements of Hellenistic receptions found in ancient papyri inscriptions and literature are missing from 1 Thessalonians 4. So if you can't prove this from extra-biblical literature, you're left with, practically speaking, a few instances in the New Testament where you can't find that. And so for me, to tip from the preacher of view based on this argument simply is not compelling particularly when we have passages like we've already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 5. So, Right. And even, and, and that was, that article is very compelling. It's it, it, just saying what we're, we're affirming here. But even if a person was not willing to listen to that, let's say I have a, a post-trib friend who's not willing to say, well, you know, you, you can't listen to that. Maybe there's other stuff out there. I would even say, hey, you know what? You're right. This is, that word meet is referring to that idea of them going out to meet the dignitary. But why does it have to be immediate? Why does it have to be as a return with Jesus? It has to be right then. Why can't it afford for a period of tribulation on the, on the earth before we return? Even though we've been snatched away, we are going to return. Because we can see that as, as people who hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, we understand that the second coming, we will be with Christ when he returns. So we are, in essence, returning, to, we're coming to a, conquer, a conquered land with the conquering king. It's just the timing. The post-trib is right then. Pre-trib says no, there's a period of tribulation before. So you could even still use that historical argument, but it doesn't necessarily have to nail you down to the post-trib view. That, that's a brilliant point. In fact... Um write that down. He just called me, he called that point. I, yeah. Well, you know, I, I am writing this down and because if memory serves me correctly, and I know you weren't quoting that source, but you know, the great new Testament scholar FF F. Bruce made, made that comment in his commentary on Thessalonians. And, um, and, and he made the point, how do you know which, which it is? It could be either one. And that's why I try to emphasize the only validity of this argument is to say it's a technical term. That is that it always has this sense and that the data just does not support it. So I would add here another passage just to kind of fill in the Thessalonians one. And that is um, John 14. 
when Jesus told, told them, I, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also, speaking of the Father's house. So I would say the catching up in Thessalonians is for believers to go to the Father's house. And then, as you said, at some later point, then they return to earth with Christ and reign with him in his kingdom. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said more with that when we talk about views of the millennium, pre-mill and all that. Um, because if a person is going to be a, a hold to a view that Christ is going to bring the kingdom in, which is what we've said in previous podcasts, that's our view that we're pre-millennial view. Um, when Christ comes to take us to the Father's house, he, he's not talking about the kingdom. He's not talking about um, when this, at the second coming. He's referring to a, something different. And uh, I think it just goes back to the, we let the text speak for itself. Um, and, and honestly, we all have presuppositions coming into a text, and we can be just as guilty as anybody of in, you know, putting our view into the text or eisegeting the text. Um, but when you really look at these texts as a whole and look at the evidence like we just read and look at the various arguments, how they're used, if we're going to take the text as is, it's going to lead us to this, this view. Well, thanks, guys, for this discussion. This was excellent. I, uh, I hope that our listeners enjoyed this. I think that you will. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments or any topics, passages that you want us to discuss, please, please send us an email at BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BibleGuysPod. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast listening service.